the legend of the phoenix all ends with beginnings what keeps the planet spinning uh the force from the beginning chose today because we were reporting on a lotto ticket and also someone finding a safe uh, under their house. But it kind of just dawned on me, I thought I was being clever, but I don't think that's the kind of luck they're talking about in that song. But um, there we go, a Daft Punk song. You're a Daft Punk fan, Nick? Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm a bit partial. I actually thought it was you doing the vocals for a moment there, Guy. So, Did you? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, I thought. Yeah, yeah. Would, yeah it would have been, uh, been a little uh, smoother on the ears if it was me. <laughs> <laughs> now I've been enjoying your music, Guy, on this have week. Have you? Mm. Ah, well, there we are. Thank you for that. Um, Even though I didn't know <clears throat> that that was the Daft Punk. Oh yeah, no, you, yeah, no. Um, that was um, yeah, no. It's quite fun choosing a song. Actually, tomorrow uh, I get to choose a power ballad, which will be fun too. So I haven't uh, quite decided what I'll do there. Um, but big decision. Yeah, yeah. It won't be a, a good night lullaby though. And uh, let's talk about sleep though, because some very interesting research going on at Otago University. One of the issues that they're going to be looking at is this question. <laughs> Could delaying school start times improve the sleep and health and well-being of high school students? It's one of the issues that Otago University researchers will be looking at. They've got a $5 million grant from the Health Research Council. They're going to study how to improve sleep in children and teenagers, or young adolescents at least, in Aotearoa. Uh, they'll look at a kaupapa Māori uh, approach to improving childhood sleep. They'll look at how pre-bed activities, and that might swing back to that cell phone conversation we were having recently, uh, how that all affects sleep, and test an online sleep programme for young teens. Now, this whole team will be led by the head of the Department of Medicine at Otago University, Professor Rachel Taylor, who joins us now. Good afternoon to you. Afternoon. Really interesting research uh, that you're looking at embarking on here. Let's start with that idea of uh, school start times. I first came across this idea, I think, out of the US, and they were talking about teenagers, and anyone who's got them will tell you that they love to sleep in and all this hormonal stuff's going on, <laughs> and that, you know, you get them to school at, you know, 8.30 or 9 o'clock, and their brains aren't working until about lunchtime. Yeah, that's absolutely correct, Guy. And so a lot of this research has started in the States because most American schools start at more like 7.30 um, rather oh, than really? our sort of 9am. Yeah, oh, yeah, very oh. few. Only about 10% of American schools start after 8.30. So, oh, wow, I'm um, just thinking about, we're all thinking about the school run and just going, oh, I can hear, I can yeah. hear Nick's voice. He's going, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, yeah, so a lot, of, a lot of research there showing some real benefits to all sorts of things that you might not think about too with delaying school start times to about... 8.30, like a big reduction in traffic accidents, because of course the kids aren't so tired. Um, 
economic benefits with improved productivity and education and things like that. Um, But why we think an even later school start would be better is that we don't have our kids starting till sort of 8.30 or 9am and yet we've still got uh, huge problems with inadequate sleep, um, a big mental health crisis as we know in our adolescent population and, and a million other health and wellbeing benefits that, you know, a little more sleep would go a long way to helping kids. Yeah, there must be quite a link between your mental health and your sleep, I'd imagine. There's a really strong link, yeah, and it goes both ways, as you might expect. You know, if you sleep well, you feel better. If you feel better, you sleep well. So so the direction really goes in both ways, and I think that um, one of the really exciting things about it, this initiative, if we can make it work, is that the benefits should be available for everyone. They're across the board, so to speak. There's no... Um, you know, selection criteria or anything like that. If your school starts later, then the potential benefits are for every kid in that school. Mm. Hey, look, I just want to chuck out a couple of the other ideas that I saw from your um, press release on this and then we can open it up to the panel and all have a crack at it. But you're also looking at how pre-bed activities, and I imagine that's, you know, whether you're watching screens or what you're doing uh, uh, before bed, But and also this may seem contradictory, but you're looking at an online sleep programme or intervention. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's always hard, yeah, to to balance the two. Yes, we are looking at screens. That's a big part of what we're interested in. Mm. But we also have sleep guidelines that say you shouldn't eat dinner in the hour before going to bed or a big meal, Mm. um, and you shouldn't do a lot of vigorous activity, and yet those guidelines are based on pretty flimsy evidence. And we also know people find them actually quite hard to adhere to, so why have guidelines if, if they don't work, which we can show through this intervention, then why have guidelines that act A, don't work and people can't follow. Um, Yes, we are thinking of an online intervention, um, but we, so you've got to really balance the the modern world and the fact that screens aren't going away. Sure, but but what what would that look like? What's an online intervention mean in this context? So it's in terms of having the resources available. So for kids, if we're wanting to improve sleep or mental health um, in children, and this particular intervention would be aimed at both, then rather than the kids relying on having to go see somebody or to go, you know, have some Mm. sort of appointment, it's about having a repository of helpful stuff that is available at their Right, so you're not going to send them texts in the middle of the night asking them whether they're asleep yet. No. No, interrupted Uh, sneakers, not our fault. No. Uh, (laughs) Sue and Nick, what interests you about this? research? Well, one thing, I mean, is there, do we know that there is a problem with um, particularly teenagers' sleep? Um, I assume if you got the grant that you must think that there is, but where's the evidence? And also, to what extent is the the cell phone and the kids, you know, the addiction to cell phones, sleeping with cell phones, you know, using them just before bed, is is that a contributing factor? And, And wouldn't it you know, couldn't we very easily recommend that teenagers don't sleep with their cell phones next to them and, you know, don't use them immediately before be- bedtime? You know, do we need yep. three years' research to recommend that? <laughs> yeah, well, there's various things there. Yeah, about 40% of our adolescents sleep less than recommended and more than half of them um, reach criteria for having really poor quality sleep. So, yes, there is a real sleep okay. problem in New Zealand. Yep. How do um, we know that? Most of that's from questionnaire data, but also okay. from objective measures using like Fitbits, Apple Watches, accelerometers, those sorts of things. They show that mm-hmm. adolescent sleep is, is really poor, um, and we've got hundreds and hundreds of um, bits of data on that. Does diet Secondly, play a role here or at all? Or, sorry, just to, to bust in there, but I'm just 
does is diet something that you look at with that? In re- in term in relation to sleep? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yep, yep. There are very mm. strong links between diet and sleep. Mm. Um, and in fact, improving diet, changing people's diets really hard, as you might imagine. Changing their sleep can have quite substantial impacts on their diet. And oh, yeah, so the other way around. Much yeah. More, yeah, a mm. much more um, uh, attractive measure. <laughs> um, but back to Sue's question. Um, most of the data that have actually looked at whether screen time actually influences sleep in children is on the basis of questionnaires, so it's pretty sort of cruddy data. Mm. Um, we've just finished a study where we've had children essentially wear police body cameras um, for the few hours before bed and even overnight in their bedrooms, um, which really shows us that how children use their phones and other devices is very different to how you and I might, um, including the constant interruptions all night long and things. Um, and we just analysed in analysing those data now so that we can actually answer is it all devices, is it all types of screen behaviours or just some that might impact on sleep. Um, and why we do need that research though is that again, you know, we currently can tell kids not to take their phones into their bedrooms. Right. Absolutely useless advice. Absolutely right. useless. <laughs> well, you can you ban them I mean? like the Netherlands has. Um, yeah, 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 Nick, have yeah. you got a question that's keeping you up at night? <laughs> I was one of those teenagers that was afflicted by this problem mm. so uh, it, it rings true to me uh, at least at an anecdotal level and I certainly accept the, the, the need for the research as you've stated the um, the question I've got and, and Sue said something earlier uh, around actually you know New Zealand schools or government changing things and I just want to know you know if this research shows you know as I think I mean I think it will that if we alter the time that school starts we made it more flexible do we have a system that's capable of actually making that change yeah, possibly. I mean, actually, the school times are really up to the schools. There's there's some limits around how early they can go and things like that. But essentially, schools can set their own start times. And so what um, the work that we're doing now with schools and bus drivers and sports groups and a whole variety of you know relevant stakeholders is what are the sort of barriers to implementing a late-to-start time and how can we overcome those barriers? Mm. So, for I- instance, it could be just shortening lunchtime, it could be making each class five minutes shorter, those sorts of things so that, you know, they they don't have to be there so early, but that's not impacting adversely their education or anything like that. I'm delighted you're looking at this, you know, changing school or looking at changing starting hours at schools. I know Wellington High uh, yes. has ch- uh, introduced changes for the senior students. What time do they start? I think it's 10, a- mm, 10 right. o'clock, actually. Yeah. It makes but a bit of it, sense, And, and, and with, I mean, there's a lot of evidence and enthusiasm and the kids did better and all this stuff. But the parents, there was, there was some op- resistance from parents because it would interfere with their day because, you know, you were mm. absolutely right um, that that uh, Rachel, Professor Rachel Taylor, I should say, um, that it would impre- you know we wouldn't probably have to build more motorways yeah, if we had all flexible that, it's starting a good time times. Time to look at that though, isn't it? Because of the whole COVID disruption and the more approach of working from home and workplaces seem to be not all of them, but seem to be yeah, more flexible think, about yes, this. So it's not a bad time right. to yeah. to be looking at that. Look, we better wind it up there now. We've gone a bit uh, a bit over time with that one, but it's an interesting discussion, isn't it? Two one zero one. If you want to get in touch with me on the panel on that subject, we're speaking there to Otago University Professor Rachel Taylor. Thank you for your time. Uh, uh, this afternoon. It's going to be quite interesting to see. We have to follow up what they come up with with that one, especially that idea of delaying school start times, which seem to have resonated somewhat with uh, Sue and Nick on the panel 
this afternoon. Well, someone somewhere in Christchurch is $33 million richer after winning Lotto Powerball. But either they don't know it yet or they're playing it very cool. A week after the prize was drawn, the ticket, which was sold in the well-heeled suburb of Maryvale in Christchurch, has not been claimed. So what happens to the missing millions? Lucy Fullerton is the head of corporate comms and head of winner's experience at Lotto. Kia ora, welcome to the panel, Lucy. Kia ora, Guyon. This... You do hear this a bit, don't you, where someone, the ticket is won, and, uh, but it hasn't been claimed yet. There's a week's gone by now. What, what's usually behind it? What's usually the reason? Um, well, it, it, it varies a little bit. So um, usually it's just that they simply haven't had a chance to check their ticket. Um, they might be on holiday or they might be, you know, just forgot they've bought it. Um, but there have been rare instances when someone has uh, checked it and, and they know that they've won, but they just sit on it for a few days because they just need to process that. Yeah, it'd take a bit of processing, $33 million, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it really we're would. a long way and from it, healthy homes. The right to... Sorry, we just had a rogue promo. Sometimes stuff like that happens. That, that was probably my mate Corin Dan. I don't know why he busted in on there. Maybe, maybe, no, he's, he's an ex Christchurch boy, but he's, he's not. Uh, he's in Wellington now. Unless he took a rogue trip to uh, Miraval, I don't think that was him. But, um, yeah, so I, I, they could be just sort of gathering their thoughts or setting up a family trust or something. Maybe they've just lost the ticket. What happens if you lose your ticket? Well, let's unpack uh, that. What happens, yeah, Lucy? Yeah, so if they lose a ticket, there is a process for managing that. And obviously we can do various things to check, um, you know, who it is. And we can, yeah, we'll still, we'll still manage to find out who the winner is or who the purchaser is at least. Yeah. I remember when I was um, rifling through all your documents, when I had a bit of a look into how Lotto operates. You probably remember my 17 OIA requests or something at the time. Um, <laughs> it rings a bell, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, and you, from memory, you had um, this sort of unclaimed prize uh, pool, eh? You've got to keep the money for a year or something from memory. Tell me how yeah. that kind of works or tell our listeners how it works. Yeah, sure. So what we have is, it's called the Prize Reserve Fund, and it's essentially... Um, a self-insurance policy for paying jackpots when the sales might be slightly below the jackpot, if that makes sense. So we have to set the jackpot before the week. Um, it's it's quite a complicated instrument, and I, it's a bit beyond me, so I won't go into the details. Yeah, sure. But, 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 so d- what d- happens is, yeah. yeah, so unclaimed prizes just go into that fund, and then after 12 months, um, they'll be used either for future prizes and promos, or they'll eventually be distributed back to the community with all our profits. Yeah, so... Um, I guess that key, the key question is, this mystery multi-Miravale millionaire, how long have they got to claim the prize? They've, only got, they've got a year, right? They've got a year. They've got a year. But, I mean, to put it in perspective, we've never had a Powerball prize go unclaimed in the entire time we've had Powerball. What's the and highest prize that's been unclaimed, do you reckon? Uh, that's a really good question. And I think there has been a first division prize that went unclaimed. We couldn't track that person down. It was well before my time. It was a number of years ago. So that would um, be what? Have, more than well, hundreds of thousands it, anyway, would it? it, it yeah, I, but I think it was only a couple of hundred thousand. I don't have the That might have details. been mine, actually. <laughs> 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 I can't just think of it. <laughs> it probably was, mm. Guyon. Yes. Yeah, and so look, the, the, the longest time that a Powerball prize has gone unclaimed is 31 days. And we've never oh, had one that hasn't been paid eventually. So, yeah. Hey, um, Sue, have you had any recent trips to Maryville? 
No, and I think only I can think of perhaps once or twice in my entire life I've taken out one of these lotto tickets and then I immediately lost it. So, <laughs> I, well, you might have been a missing million. Th- there must be plenty of. Well, I was interested first of all when you said that you do actually track people down if they don't claim them. How do you do that? But also. Say I lost it and I'd actually won $100, would you bother tracking me down? Or do you only go to this effort of tracking yeah. people down? I'm not sure how you actually do it, but somehow, um, if you've won $33 million. So um, we would, all Powerball winners, eventually if they hadn't claimed, we would look for them. Um, oh. And first division as well. $100 we probably wouldn't. Um, but yeah, so and, and the way we do it, and I will be a bit coy about this, not to be annoying, but just because we don't really want to compromise the process or the winner themselves. But um, there's a whole range of ways depending on how they bought the ticket and where they bought the ticket. So if they bought it online, obviously that's very, very simple. We've got their right. details. And there have been actually a couple of times since I've been in this role where we've run people and said, hey, look, um, it's Lucy here from Lotto. You might just want to log on and check your account um, because they had a million dollars sitting there that they hadn't checked. Um, when it's in store, it's a little bit different because we they're anonymous, essentially. Um, so we leave it a while. We just want to give them time and space to claim themselves and to have that moment. Um, but then if it gets to sort of two or three weeks, we can look at things like, you know, the time of the ticket, you know, where they bought it. Um, there's, there's a whole range of information. Yeah. I mean, if you had the time of the ticket, you just had the security camera and you could tell, couldn't you? Yeah, that's one option. Yeah, yeah that right. is an option. Um, so, I don't want to yeah. bring it down into this conversation because it's always great, you know, Mystery Millionaire and all that. But um, I imagine a lot of people who win massive amounts like that end up being absolutely miserable. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I certainly yeah, don't want to be a downer on it, but 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 yeah. kind of maybe it's just um, deep in my reptilian brain. But um, do you you run? I think you might even be part of this, Lucy. Do you have a sort of team of people who, yeah. you know, can kind of help navigate the awful experience yeah. of winning multis, millions of dollars, <laughs> yeah, it's a te- it, yeah, buying know, a phantom I mean, Rolls Royce or something? It would just be gutting. No, no, look, it's a really good question. I'm glad you brought it up because it's a fascinating thing to be involved in, and it is my team that does it. So we have a prize payment team who look after the payments, but my team, and there's only three of us that do it, so it's quite tight, um, we meet the big winners and we just walk them through this very, very well-established process now that we've been refining over, obviously, 20, 30 years. Um, and what's fascinating is the big winners, so upwards of 20 million, they are completely overwhelmed. Um, the ones that win a million are totally fine. It's just conceivable. You can you pay off your mortgage, you buy a car, you go overseas, and you know there's probably you know, not a whole lot left after that. Um, but the big winners, they do need a lot of assistance and support, depending on who they are, some more than others. Um, but what we find is when they walk in, they are quite overwhelmed. But once you sort of step them through quite a rational process and they just have someone to talk to who has zero interest in their winnings, that just, it just, it's amazing when you see them walk out again, the, the reassurance and kind of the, the confidence that they have and that there is actually lots of stuff they can do to put in place you know, a process for managing this money. Nick, do you reckon you could handle it? Uh, yes, I, it might be something I've thought about <laughs> now and again. And I'd love to. I've got a hundred questions to ask Lucy, but I well, won't. You've got a few. I won't give you a hundred. No, but no. Give but you, but look, know, it you. does strike me, and I, I have these discussions often with, with people. Um, why not create 33 separate millionaires rather than one person earning 33, uh, you know, winning 33 million? Yeah. 
Yeah, and that's another thing we get asked quite a lot. So um, probably the cop-out answer is it's, it's not our decision. It's set out in the game rules, so that's, that's sort of the first thing. But Who I sets guess, those? Uh, so those are set by, um, by the minister. Right. Uh, ultimately, she approves them. But mm-hmm. we obviously have a, a role in recommending them. So it's, that, you know, I'm not saying that we don't have anything to do with it. Um, but that is the way the current game rules are set. But, um, I mean, if you look at our statutory purpose, which is about maximising funds for the community, mm-hmm. and what we see is that there are a lot of people, um, and increasingly a lot of people, who don't buy a ticket until it hits $20 million. Um, yes. And I would say that prior to working for Lotto, I would have been in that camp. Um, yeah, and so if you if you just kept it at a million dollars, which is what you're sort of saying, that you cap it that way. It wouldn't um, be profitable. I mean, yeah. when you say that the whole goal is to maximise funds for the community, isn't the whole goal to, to encourage gambling? Well, um, and, and this is, again, you know, something that Guyan will be very familiar with. We... We have I'm just staying purpose. quiet here. <laughs> kind of. We, have we seem to have purpose. taken a bit of a turn, but that's all good. No, it's all good. On. It's all good. Um, which is that um, we we off we maximise funds for the community while minimising any harm, and that is absolutely taken seriously within the business. So every single major decision that is a lens, it's a question that is asked by but, the CEO. But you know, if gambling board. is a harm, why not just um, prevent it in the first place? I mean, it's all, you know, all this sort of, you know, PR about maximising funds for the community. Really, it's encouraging a very poor gambling habit in the in the nation. But it's not the end. The what? end is not the gambling. The end is the, the massive amounts of community organisations that benefit. And, and often very, and often in true. very low-income yeah. communities that, that would not get. I acknowledge that. So that's, that is the end, isn't it? It, I think it that, is, and... I think also, I mean, when you look at who plays Lotto, and I'm not saying that Lotto doesn't cause harm, it does, and we we have a lot of stuff in place to try and minimise that and understand it better and manage it. But um, when you look at who plays Lotto, it's 85% of New Zealanders. It's millions of people who just do it for a bit of fun. They spend, you know, $10 a week. How many get addicted? So we go by the Ministry of Health stats because they're independent of us and we think that's what we should be using. And the way we look at it is per 10,000 players. Um, and those stats, they do have, like, they're not perfect because it's people who present with gambling addiction. But the number that we have is that it's 0.7 per 10,000 players who present with a, with a lotto gambling problem. And that's not to say that's fine. Of course it's not. And we will always keep working to try and minimise that. But in, in the scale of who plays lotto, it's very low. Thanks, Lucy. We'll leave it there. Um, I appreciate your time on the panel this afternoon. Lucy Fullerton there, Head of Corporate Comms and Head of Winner's Experience at Lotto and someone who may need her services in the future is wandering around Christchurch, uh, $33 million richer. We've only got uh, four minutes left to go. we better get to our final story of the afternoon on the panel. It's not quite a multi-million dollar Lotto win, but finding an antique safe hidden in your home, that's pretty cool, isn't it? Um, tradies who are renovating a lower hut home found this large safe under the floor, and then the owners of the home used to jackhammer to prise it open and uh, get it out of the get it out of the floor and prise it open. So, what was inside? Well, Trull Somerville is a reporter with Stuff and has been following and covering this story. Kyoto, welcome to the panel. Oh, good day. How are you going? I'm, I'm going well. So, how, how did this play out when this was opened up? What was inside? Well, uh, all that really was inside was uh, instructions on how to reset the safe, 
which aren't really that helpful inside the safe. And then and, uh, an antique letter as well, um, which is, was addressed from the former owners of the house to their um, granddaughter. Well, that's cool, though, isn't it? Yeah, it was a bit of a of almost a treasure map of, of where they'd left all their valuables. I think they had them scattered across eight separate banks across Lower Hutt, um, filled with all sorts of things, uh, like a wallet full of cash and um, a canvas bag full of jewellery as well. Wow. So who is the rightful recipient of this letter and what's the search for them? I mean, it's a bit like a missing missing winner, but um, what's happened with the finding this person? Well, I mean, we, we, we ran a couple of stories. We yeah. ran the first one and left a couple of details out just so, you know, we might be able to check that uh, we had the right person if they could give us the details of, uh, of the former family. And, you know, uh, we were absolutely inundated with emails, you know, from amateur sleuths and uh, genealogists, <laughs> um, which was very helpful in the end. Um, but there was one letter in particular of a, of a friend of the daughter of the couple um, who then sort of put us in touch with uh, what ended up being the widower of the, of the daughter. And um, he's, he's uh, had a bit of a chat with us and run us through the, the family's last few years. And um, the, do- the granddaughter is still alive. She's still living over in Australia. And he's uh, going to hand this letter off uh, with, um, you know, a little bit of a personal message that was apparently in the letter as well. Oh, that's really cool. Hey, I've hogged all the time as usual, Sue and Nick, but you've got 30 seconds if you've got a, a, a quick question. Oh, I, I have a question. I mean, is there, was there anything in the letter or the, the, did, did the granddaughter get anything that she didn't know about or that she hadn't already got? And what's well, been she doesn't, happening she doesn't to all quite the money know about it yet. sitting in the um, bank? Oh, she, she's, she's going to be surprised. And, and also, yes, you said you were going to send the letter. Are you sure that's wise? Shouldn't you just uh, hand it? Guy and your child's been very good. I thought she was going to participate. Oh, well, I didn't leave any room for anyone else, so, you know, <laughs> that was the panel today. Thanks for your ears. Thanks for listening. I'm Guy and Espiner.